0: hello everyone um, we are continuing here at text of the matter um, on Hegel and Marx and their relationships through their shared concept of the dialectic this is a uh, continuing something that um, we were working on earlier in our final episode on Hegel so
1: I'm Misha I'm Egon and welcome back kiddos you made it through um... <laughs> Oh, all those all those
0: Hegelian kiddos, all those like the the young you Hegelians. Say, I like yeah. kiddos, yeah. The young, I mean, the youngest Hegelians, the baby <laughs> Hegelians.
1: I think we can start to see, though, that there is, you know, a, a revolutionary component to what Hegel is doing. Absolutely, and I think the historical context of when he's writing these things are often forgotten about, which is unfortunate because you know, I think this is why Hegel hat, you know, this is why, you know, Hegel's on a, a white lives matter t-shirt, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that most deaf is wearing today. Right. Like, yeah. Um, but you know, I think, uh, Herbert Marcuse puts this into perspective really well and in, in sort of the beginning of his book reason and revolution and, um, and I'll note here too, for Marcuse, he always translates Geist, which is phenomenology of Geist uh, in the German. He, he translates it to mind as opposed to spirit. You know, we're normally uh, hearing phenomenology of spirit, phenomenology of spirit. Well, Marcuse, who's German, he translates to phenomenology of mind. So Mind,
0: he translates translates to, to mind in English which is this great kind of like fun complexity. I'm not sure exactly what he does in German. Like what, what, if, if that me, like, what is the meaning of him using it in his natural language and how he learned it? Because that's how it was titled at the time that he was alive. Right. Phenomenology of, of the mind. That's what would have been sold. And um additionally you know you could also point out as i think you're you're suggesting that there also is some latent meaning in his choice of words as a german
1: person living in berkeley living in california right Um, right yeah and we can obviously argue over german which we're not going to do because neither of us are fluent german speakers so what was the point But, um, (laughs) but there's a lot of that and you see it on twitter all the time you know the most recently there was a whole thing about off haven you know where it's you know and and uh, it's twitter so it devolves to jokes basically but um you know what is what does that really mean because there's not really a good english translation of it sort of sublation sublation the approximate overcoming which gets used in nietzsche
0: in a near opposite way or if not opposite opposing way
1: right Um, yeah but, but we um, will, will sublate all of that uh, discussion to, um, to, to, to books and reading for right now. But I, you know, I, I,
0: I just, just one note before you continue. Sure. I would like yeah. to say what's really fascinating also, it, just as a, one more point about translation is if you read um, uh, any of the more recent books on historical materialism, um, in particular like Gijek's historical materialism book, he is constantly referring it to both phenomenology of spirit and phenomenology of mind, because he is now relating to it as two concrete forms, translation one, translation two, sometimes of the first book uh, that Hegel wrote, and sometimes of the second, sometimes of the same book by different mm-hmm. uh, translators. So it's fascinating that these two conceptual edifices are exist side by side for the same
1: thinker just in a title but anyway and and it's representative representative of of how we interpret different philosophers you know like the way that plato was interpreted in ancient greece i'm sure is a light years different than how he's interpreted now and and this is and honestly you know hegel would argue that this is absolutely the dialectic and it's how it's supposed to work right um but uh, to bring it back around, in, in Reason and Revolution, Herbert Marcuse says this He says, Hegel wrote the, phenolo- Hegel wrote the phenomenology of mind in 1806 in Jena while the Napoleonic armies were approaching that city. He finished it as the Battle of Jena sealed the fate of Prussia and enthroned the heir of the French Revolution over the powerless remnants of the old German Reich. The feeling that a new epoch In world history had just begun pervades hegel's book and i bring this up not only because you can see the kind of revolutionary spirit that's involved in what hegel's doing and how that could find its way to marx and and turn into an actual revolutionary substance Um, but that you know in hegel's time like the and, and and these are a lot of the things that i critique about hegel and dislike he is espousing the progressive view you know he's laying the groundwork for the republic nation state you know he is watching the french revolution happen and seeing it as a vital expression you know of the dialectic through human history and then of course the the terror that follows is part and parcel to that and so you know he sort of celebrates napoleon in this sort of uh, perverse way but um You know, to him, this is the revolution. This is the bourgeois revolution, and I, I can't remember who well, says it. I think it's Karl Korsch in his book *Marxism and Philosophy*. But he reminds us that Hegel is the philosopher of the bourgeois revolution.
0: No, absolutely. Our... You know, I, I this is this is exactly how I was going to respond to you. Was was that in in a sense? you see how Marx's theory is formed quite directly by Hegel and his response philosophically, because for Marx, there are two essential stages that we cannot escape the bourgeois revolution, that rather the bourgeois revolution is necessary. And when we say a bourgeois revolution, we're talking about you know the movement towards democratic standards, towards, things like unions towards industrialization these were all parts of bourgeois individualism life. individualism, know, and, individualism and subjectivity
1: you know what is the bourgeois the, subject but the city citizen this someone absolutely who is who is working beyond just subsistence and the uh continuation of their family you know and 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 and, and like for
0: instance a person who strongly rejected Hegel in many ways. Kierkegaard always strikes me as this perfect, both in Marxian, but also Hegelian, um, bourgeois subject to this, this semi-aristocratic character looking for uh, the loss that happens naturally in experience and wishes to, instead of finding a dialectical transcendence to find true repetition of the original experience which always turns out to be impossible because he can't really get past his own individual experience um and he doesn't really understand hegel in in the writing and you see this come so often in many of our most famous and, and most profound bourgeois modern philosophical thinkers and in this way you know hegel and marx both Kind of stand over them as like means of interpreting them, means of understanding their their subjective and universal positions.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so uh, something that I've I've been using that I've found really helpful. Um, so this dude Shlomo Aveneri, wrote this um, essay in 1967 called "The Hegelian Origins." of marx's political thought um and it, it's just really interesting because basically what he's mainly looking at is this uh 1843 writing of marx called the critique of hegel's philosophy of right yeah and it's um and and, and it should be noted that philosophy of
0: right was hegel's most clear and complete writing on politics Right. Yes. like and also most directly oh sorry
1: oh I was just I'm just adding and also one that is finds Hegel aging and becoming an old man and and getting a little more reactionary in his interpretations of what a state should be and how it should function um specifically responding to the massive um instability of the the German state which you know exists from fucking, you know as because he's writing philosophy of right up until uh you know the end of world war ii basically
0: but but also his more abstract connection to plato and yes the kind of somewhat proto-fascistic which i wouldn't call hegel fascistic just liberal in some of the worst ways yeah. um yeah. Uh, but there being that continuity of the kind uh, of the shaping of the mind of the state and that kind of special person that he imagined as being the force for that. But um, we'll go on with uh, this essay. I have not heard of this essay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And so, like I said, it's talking about this critique that Marx did of philosophy of right. And this critique is it's strangely academic for Marx. It's like, here's what Hegel says. And then Marx writes like fucking 30 pages on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Shlomo is claiming is that he's using, um, uh, or he's being influenced by Fairbach's uh, work called Provisional Thesis for the Reformation of Philosophy. Yeah. In that work, Fairbach is is using Hegel as an interlocutor. And um, this is Shlomo's uh, sort of paraphrasing of, of Fairbach's theses, and, and he says, um, Hegelian philosophy is a quote mystification because it perverts the subject predicate relationship by transform it by a transformative reading of Hegel that will substitute predicate for subject and vice versa. One can arrive at a philosophy that is adequate to reality, man, who in Hegel's system is a predicate of spirit will thus be transformed again into a subject, whereas spirit will become what it has always been a predicate of man and you know for me i don't necessarily agree with fairbach but the point is in this sort of reversing the subject predicate relationship of spirit and man you can see how marx can take an idealism and turn it into a materialism right that he is sort of to use zizek in a way sort of reading hegel against the grain where he agrees with what sort of hegel is proposing and the concepts that he's bringing forth but he's recognizing the split in hegel's thinking of the authoritative state and the nobility of that with what is actually happening in society and what that actually looks like and how that is not you know is essentially what hegel is claiming it to be right
0: i i find some, find this quite interesting because um uh, lukacs talks about this relationship with Farrakh as well in the beginning of of his book and he talks about marx's mourning of treating hegel as a dead dog mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. as like this fixed sy- systematic order to be consumed but at the same time he also talks about Hegel not being a dead dog, right? right. As being uh, something that is alive. And of complaining that Fauerbach did not have the luck of having truly understood Hegel, right? That And, and you can see in that way, an evolution of, of Marxist thought from those those early papers. Because by the end, it isn't just a simple reversal of Hegel, right? It's a more complex and interactive analysis. Because as we talked about at the end of the text, um, and his uh, confrontation with the idea of alienation, alienation of culture, yes, there's a degree of reversal, but but culture still remains this alienated body in Marx. Maybe the affirmation of it changes. Right, but it is something that is taken from Hegel and put into Marx into a materialist system, and the con- the context changes its meaning, but the concept itself remains uh, relatively uh, untouched.
1: Well, yeah, I always like to look at Marx. He's it's like an application of Hegelianism, right? Yes. Um, you know, and and you can see this in some of Marx's most like fundamental concepts in that you know he is attributing alienation to the bifurcation of the individual between the bourgeois subject and the citizen which is exactly what hegel is talking about you know hegel is taking the sort of bourgeois subject the individual and saying no you must also be the citizen you must universalize your experience in order to to you know contend or to meet with the absolute." And
0: as well as the estrangement of the individual from their labor time and their labor time as this collective participation. So then the universal is broken from the particular or in this case, the individual human being. Right. Right. And of course, this is
1: this is, you know, straight from Hegel as well, too, where it's like, you know, he's. You know we sort of talked about this a little bit in the master and bondsman episode we did but the way that hegel sees work is it's fundamental to the dialectical process because it is part of what turns the object to part of the subject when we make something when we make an object it is not just an object uh, a noumenon so to speak yeah. uh, you know a for itself um but it is also part of us and and you know it's fundamental to hegelianism that this work this activity is how how this whole process functions and how one can internalize the object which is already internal to us um but appears as separate right and and you know and this is hegel trying to solve kant's problem of you know the antinomies right Well, I I think this leads um,
0: into uh, another interesting quote from um, Reason and Revolution by Mm -hmm. Marcusa, in which he's talking about phenomenology of the mind in particular. And he says, the dialectical system alters the structure and meaning of the proposition and makes it something quite different from the proposition of traditional logic. The latter logic, to which Hegel alludes as the logic of common sense, meaning the logic of traditional scientific method as well, treats propositions as consisting of a subject, which serves as a fixed and stable base and a predicate attached to it. The predicates are the accidental properties, or in Hegel's language, determinations of a more or less fixed substance. As a contrast to this view of proposition, Hegel sets the speculative judgment in philosophy. The speculative judgment does not have a stable and passive subject. Its subject is active and develops itself into in its predicates. The predicates are various forms of the subject's existence or to state it somewhat differently. when uh, What happens is that the subject goes under and turns into the predicate. So this is returning to what you were talking about in uh, hey, uh, Marx's earliest references to, to Feuerbach. But Lukacs adds another element where he says, Beyond this transformation into the predicate, where Hegel becomes limited isn't so much this relation between subject and predicate, what is the subject and what is the predicate, but rather, what is it that makes up the predicate? Is it something like Hegel's statement that East is also West, right? These stable Mm -hmm. forms, conceptual forms, or do they become forces? as hegel himself describes as a possibility do they become actual movements of people of historical forces of violence of war of uh, economic motivations of industrial revolution right right that no longer can it simply be conceptual abstraction versus another conceptual concretization but rather these real things that are multiple in and of themselves, right? And uh, this is where Marx, Marx's system as a whole, is fundamentally better. Um, but interestingly enough, when we look at people like Adorno or Marcusa, I would say they are far more Hegelian, than Lukács. and Lukac. And Lukac is an ex- extremely Hegelian Marxist for his time. Um, And as things go on, Hegel becomes more and more powerful over this. So as we look into Marx going into our next episode and we start getting into those concepts such as alienation and uh, commodity fetish um, into the way that he uses the dialectic um, to to set up these very substantial categories in the economy and in history, that there are all these forces going on around him the a long lineage of philosophy born of his thinking, a long political uh line that bore that bore multiple actual states, his own political activity that uh transformed Parisian politics forever, yeah. right, as budgie would call it the strong singularity of the Paris commune, right so. There's all of these floating signifiers, but also concrete material elements, dialectical elements that are at play when we go into Marx. Yes, and, uh, they should. We should. We should be reminded of them before we fully venture
1: in. Yeah, and then and to remind like how remind ourselves of how close Marx was to Hegel's time. You know, they were there was overlap there you know what I mean and and that's important to realize and um you know I think is going to be really instrumental when we move to Marx and start reading him to remember that that this is something that was part of his upbringing part of his education um and that you know I yeah I did mention this like sort of oddball text by Marx early on in his career in 1843 um but Marx also never goes out and just refutes Hegel. He might critique him, but he never refutes him. Sure. And and, you know, whether it's Lukács or Adorno, um, you know, that str- that dialectical strand uh, passes through Marx and is is important to the reinterpretation of communism and socialism after World War Two. And and, you know, it's it's very fascinating, I think. And um, Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: And, and and I, and ultimately I think what the work will be going on uh, continuing the project that we've worked on so far and that uh, you all have been uh, joining us in is to really see what it means to participate in a dialectical analysis of society, how Hegel and his ideas participate in this work and how Marx's ideas do. Mm -hmm. And to kind of work out why these various points on the continuum of synthesis between the two thinkers and what they take and what they leave behind, what this means about the idea of socialism, of Marxism, of communism, as both heterogeneous and single particular things, um uh you know how how that process makes the political future right yes and how we can how we can construct it through deep and rigorous um work with these thinkers
1: yeah and then and to also acknowledge that there's you know that there's a wake that these thinkers leave behind you know i mean i think one of the most frustrating things about reading hegel you know beyond just the reading of hegel which which i joke i mean hegel can be really fun but it's you know uh it's difficult reading it can be difficult going but um you know the frustrating thing about reading him is how fucking often he's right or like has a premonition of of the world that we live in and and i think that should give us some credence to to not only analyze what hegel's thinking but but give credence to how he influenced Marx, who obviously had a huge impact on the world. You know, yeah. so
0: and and if we are to throw away Hegel, we are throwing away Marx. Right? Yeah, child, totally. we are we are not taking Marx seriously because Hegel is not a dead dog; he is a living dog, and we need to pet him and give him hugs and all, all the care that a good dog needs needs a good right? bath yeah we we don't want an angry dog covered in fleas so lashing out like like kanye west or whatever
1: oh, <laughs> talk about a dog that needs a bath um yeah. and kim's so, like no no
0: yeah um although i heard some good wisdom today yeah uh, i've talked about him enough and so in that regard i feel like i'm going to talk about him one more time <laughs> and, then, and that's it. And that's going to be it. That's, that's going to be, be it. And it. be coming soon to uh, take to the matter.
1: So, uh, it's funny, this conversation made me think of something. And, and, you know, it's kind of a stupid hot take, but I would love to still hear your reaction to it. You know, so we're talking about this system that Hegel has set forth about this sort of uh, making the individual universal and in this through this process of dialectics and um you know and speaking of like some the most sometimes the most frustrating thing about hegel is like where he's right or has these kind of like glimpses of the future
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i freak out sometimes where it's like man is he just talking about the singularity like is he talking about like us all being computers and thus finally mm-hmm. being like you know the many that is one that is also the many you know but that's like indistinguishable from itself <laughs> like You know, like, well, what I think is that,
0: and where Marx really gets the transformation is that many of the things that Hegel was describing as being kind of like this synthetic and fluid process of individual and universal moving between each other to realize this whole is actually a violent process of of not just conceptual and psychological conflict or historical change that leaves remnants of its of that struggle but a constant battle for where what can come next that actual synthesis will be so radically different from what we imagine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that that um trying to describe it is somewhat difficult right marx doesn't marx's utopia of the communist state isn't described in the same way as the state in hegel right which is so clear for hegel Um, marx is more trying to lay out the fundamental movement from this bourgeois revolution to the socialist revolution and then similarly we will get into the way when it happens practically with the russians it turns from this movement from the bourgeois to the socialist revolution or communist revolution to the socialist revolution to the communist revolution where they're in this sort of partial socialism that becomes hypothesized in uh in stalin and faked into real communism and never really gets there it's a stage that is always out there we're always working toward it but we can't realize it um so yeah, it's amazing how he he predicts forms, but at the same time, it's it's unsurprising that there was a necessary political response from the left to his work because it could not sustain itself. It required this um being hinged to the earth, you know.
1: Well, and I, you know, I think that's really the greatest way you can describe Hegel's work, really, is the, or or at least dialectics, is that, you know, it's not that you have two contradictions or two things that are opposed to each other, and that they are somehow integrated to make progress, but in conceiving of, of a contradiction as a whole, it, it essentially is in being able to conceive of a contradiction as non-contradictory necessarily produces something new yes new point of which we must embark from and unite the antinomies inherent to that um that we're not the same antinomies inherent to what came before and that you know that sublation is that both of those contradictions are destroyed and they become something else something richer and, mm-hmm. and,
0: and uh, all I can finally say about it is I hope that it's clear that like some of the like, neoliberal qualities that came out of Hegel, Fukuyama's End of History, that it's clear that that is not what the absolute is, that what uh, the absolute for Hegel, right or wrong, whatever that would mean in, in this context, is something complex and moving. And that that movement leads to somewhere uh, equally rich and powerful. And that even that, while I I ultimately disagree with Lukács, that Marx isn't just some settled point of like absolute opening to the right way of thinking about things that we need these, these moments, we need these elements, whether they're old white guys or not. And that like, You know, only through reflection upon them can we sublate them. Yeah,
1: I mean, I couldn't have said it better. You know, I mean, it's like if we want a war, if we want a world, not a war, if we want a world. Nice, a nice bit of Freudian slip, parapraxis. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, but that is truly beyond, you know, this sort of patriarchal, hegemonic white centric world that we've inherited you know we have to move through these thinkers that you know at least if we do believe hegel that the conditions to move past that world is inherent intrinsic to that world itself Yeah. so while maybe not the sexiest thing in looking through these thinkers we actually get a portal to the new world, that we get tools to build that new world. Um, so, yeah,
0: I, I, I think that's actually a great way to conclude this episode. Um, so this w- is our final bit on Hegel. Um, if you go back a couple episodes, you can follow through uh, all of our work on Hegel and on dialectics. and. Um, take the whole ride, or you can just uh, start here and go on to what we'll be doing next week, where we'll really be digging into um, Marx and and little elements of some of the theorists we've already referred to, as well as some of the people who followed him and worked on his project in a, in a very concrete way. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, this was a, a ton of fun. And I'm really glad that we did it. It's it's fulfilling to have gone through this process of Kant and Hegel, as difficult as they are, and uh, and now we're starting to see, um, you know, some practical results. And it, it's 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 invigorating to to see how that played out in a continuous way, in a meaningfully continuous way, when we often. It's hard to find those type of continuities intellectual continuities now
1: we're into the light of modernity baby yeah um so, uh, yeah right. but um yeah uh, thank you all for tuning in um we've got a patreon um that uh if you join we've got little goodies we got little stickers little stickies and yeah. there'll be some other fun stuff there as well, and it just you know helps every little support helps. And, um, yeah, join us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever your, your uh, kink is, and um, and we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, communicate, say what's up. It's uh, great to be with you. Bye, and please, the matter, jump in the comments and fucking compliment that shirt that Misha is wearing, <laughs> it looks like the texture of a towel. It It, looks so fly. It It sort of is like a towel. It's so fly. Thank you.
0: I appreciate it.
1: Summer's not dead, baby. (laughs) Um, all
0: right. Love you guys.
1: Bye. Bye.